four people were taken hostage during a bank robbery. And during this standoff that took place, as I was reading about it even earlier this afternoon, these uh, four bank workers that were taken hostage grew to like their captors. And they, they developed a, a, even a compassion, a weird affinity for these men that had come in with submachine guns and threatened them and uh, held them against their will initially at least. And in fact, these four hostages came to fear the police more than they feared uh, the, the men that had come in and, and taken them hostage. And in fact, when the police finally did enter, they, they ended up firing these rounds of, of tear gas into this bank vault where they were holed up and, and uh, resisting arrest and, and trying to, to escape, which never works with bank robberies, right? I mean, have we, the, the successful bank robberies, like get me a plane, get me a helicopter, get me a car, I'm, I'm leaving town, that never works, does it? So if that's your plan to pay off student loans, just don't, right? get more creative than that because the police come in tear gas in the the bank vault everybody's just coughing everything else and yet at the same time as they're arresting these men that had held these four hostage the the four hostages are pleading with the police no don't hurt them Uh, they they didn't hurt us and as one of them was being led away in handcuffs one of the women that was held hostage was yelling after this guy hey when am i going to see you again it doesn't make sense does it And that's been applied since then to different situations and in different storylines. And you've probably seen it in TV shows or in movies where a a captor develops a a relationship or a captive rather develops a relationship with their captor where they they fall fall in love with their their captor. They they ended up loving the person that is treating them badly, that is uh, doing things that are, are bad for the person. And that's backwards. And we look at that and we say, how is that possible that you would want to return to or go back to or stay with your captor? And yet at the same time, that's what we do with the law. We are freed from the law in Christ. Through the gospel, Jesus through the cross has freed us from the law. And Paul talks about that in Romans. And that's what we've been talking about so far. And yet in what we're dealing with in this context that we started to look at last week with Peter is we're dealing with somebody who wanted to go back to the law. And Paul's trying to get them to, to see that, that that doesn't make sense. You remember, uh, if you back up in, in Galatians chapter 1, we looked at Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul's writing to this church saying, look, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And what we talked about there is uh, there was this group called the Judaizers that were coming into the, the, the Galatian Christians telling them, it's not enough for you just to believe in the gospel. It's not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's that plus now you need to do these works on top of that. See, the Judaizers were saying, you need to go back to the law. You need to go back to the thing that was imprisoning you. You need to go back to the thing that was holding you captive. And Peter was wanting to do that. You remember last week we talked about how Peter was eating with Gentiles. He was hanging out with Gentiles, fellowshipping with them. And then all of a sudden, here comes this envoy that's sent by James. And they show up. And these are Jewish Christians from Jerusalem that were sent. And Peter all of a sudden sees them there. And he stops what he was doing, right? He stops eating with the Gentiles because he's worried that they're going to think that he's defiled because of the Old Testament law 
used to say that you couldn't eat with or fellowship with Gentiles or eat their food because that would defile you before God. And Peter was slipping back into that mindset. And so Paul is writing saying, look, let's not be as Christians, let's not be those that are diagnosed with Stockholm syndrome when it comes to the law. Let's not go back to what was holding us captive. Let's not go back to what was imprisoning us. Let's not love the law and look for life in the law because life was never intended by the law. The law was meant to do something totally different. Galatians 2, 17 through 21 is where we're going to be tonight. Galatians 2, 17 through 21. Uh, Paul's continuing this argument as he talked about, look, I had to oppose Peter to his face. I had to, to tell Peter, hey, what are you doing? What you're doing is not keeping in step with the gospel. And he's continuing his argument here in verse 17. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, Paul's talking about the gospel here. Look, as we wanted to be justified, if you think back to Paul's life as a Pharisee, Paul wanted to be righteous, right? He wanted to be just in the eyes of God. If we look at Philippians chapter three, Paul's saying, look, I thought I was doing the right thing. He says, as to zeal for God's name, as to zeal for God's holiness, I was, I was a persecutor of the church. I was imprisoning Christians. I was seeing Christians stoned to death for their faith. And, and Paul's sitting there going, man, I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was making God happy with what I was doing. And so Paul wanted to be justified, but he's saying, look, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ now, he realized what? He says, we were found to be sinners. If you back up to verse 15, Paul was addressing this in the context of responding to Peter. And he says, look, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile, what? Sinners. Paul's saying, look, yeah, there, there used to be a distinction here that we were Jews by birth. We were people of the promise. We were the children, the offspring of Abraham. We weren't the, the Gentile sinners that were outside of the kingdom of God. We, no, we were, we were Jews, but now Paul's saying in verse 17, but hey, look, we, the whole time, even then, we were sinners just as much in need of the grace of God as the Gentiles were. Look, in my efforts to be found justified in Christ, I was discovered to be a sinner. That word found, he talks about there, it's, it's courtroom language. It's as though Paul was in the witness stand and somebody was cross-examining him and finding out that he was indeed a sinner. And that person that was examining him was Christ, was God through the word of God, through the conviction of the spirit. And he says, we too were found to be sinners. In other words, we're no better off than the Gentiles. We're sinners too. But then he goes on and he says, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. We'll get there in just a second. But the problem was, and, and, and Paul was anticipating this objection. He's like, look, we're sinners too. We, we realized that through this. And the law was there to show me that I'm a sinner. And people were responding to Paul going, so then you just want to avoid the law, don't you, Paul? You want all of us to just agree that all of us are sinners and let's just all sing songs together and hold hands and kumbaya and we're all sinners and we're born sinners and you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Let's have accountability about how we're both sinners with the same thing and not grow in Christ likeness and not grow in holiness and let's just be okay with sin. 
and love Jesus too. See, that's what the Judaizers thought Paul was doing with the gospel that he was preaching. They thought Paul was setting aside the law, going, hey, you don't need to obey God. Don't worry about that. You're a sinner. The law's there to tell you you're a sinner. Big deal. Get over it. Believe in Jesus. Let's move on with our lives and let's all sin boldly together. And Paul's saying, that's not what we were doing at all. He's saying, look, I, I needed to be justified. He said, I needed to be justified in Christ. He says, is Christ a, a servant of sin? Is Christ one who's going to promote sin? He's responding to this charge that he's an antinomian, that he's somebody that's, that's saying, forget obedience, forget godliness, just trust in Jesus and you're good. He's saying, yeah, but is, is Christ a servant of sin? Does Christ love sin? Does Christ promote sin in our lives? And his answer is what? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul's amazed that somebody would think of this, but he's, he's continuing his argument here. He's like, look, this is what I'm saying in verse 18. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. This is why Paul was arguing that he was done living by the Old Testament law. Because the Old Testament law had one purpose. What was the purpose of the law? To show that we are what? We can talk, right? We can converse. You guys, come on. Sinners, yes. To show that we're sinners. The law is the great mirror that shows us that, that we have a problem. And the law is there to, to be a mirror, to, to show me, hey, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Well, once the law has done that work, then the law is no longer useful to me, is it? As far as the Old Testament law, the Old Testament rules and regulations. And so Paul's going, look, if I rebuild what I tore down, what was it that was torn down? The law. Trying to be justified by keeping the law. Trying to be justified by obeying the law. Paul goes, if I try to rebuild that, the only good that's going to do me is show me again that what? I'm a sinner, right? Paul's like, Peter and Judaizers, you guys who want us to obey the law, he's like, what's the point? If you want me to try to be just in the eyes of God by being obedient, all that's going to do is confirm to me that I can't do that because I'm going to fail. Because Paul would say, maybe I wrote this other book called Romans, where I wrote in there, Romans 3.23, all of what sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, trying to be justified, rebuilding the law. And he says, all that's going to do is show me I'm a sinner. It's kind of like this, if I can illustrate it this way. Imagine looking into the mirror and seeing that you've got a, just a nasty stain on your shirt. And you're thinking to yourself, man, that is, is not going to fly there's somebody at the bridge tonight that I'm kind of interested in and I can't have a stain on my shirt because there's no way I'm going to stand a chance with this person, right? So you go back to the mirror and you're like, okay, yeah, there's the stain. Sure enough, it's there. I need to deal with this. You walk away and you're looking in your closet. You're like, man, I don't have any, anything else that I really want to wear right now. Everything else is wrinkled. I wore that last weekend. I can't show up wearing the same thing again. And you're like, well, maybe it's gone. And so you go back to the mirror and you're like, is the stain still there? Oh man, the stain's still there. You walk away and you're like, okay, well, maybe I can iron one of these shirts. You start ironing the shirt and then you realize, oh man, this shirt was dirty when I started to iron it because you smell the pits. Don't act like you haven't done this. And you're like, oh, that's ripe. I can't wear this. And you're like, okay, hold on. Let me go check in if the stain's still there. And you go back to the mirror looking to see if the stain's gone yet and the stain's still there. Why? Because you haven't done anything about it, Right? And you're going to the mirror to have the mirror fix the problem with the stain. Well, the mirror's not meant to fix the problem of the stain. You need a new shirt. You need something new that's given to you to replace the old. You need the old to go and the new to come. And the mirror can't do that. All the mirror can do is tell you that you need that. That's the law. And Paul's saying, look, we can't continue to go back to the law thinking that the law is going to make me clean in the eyes of God. It's not going to make you clean in the eyes of God. 
We can't go back to the law thinking it's, it's going to make me innocent in God's courtroom. It's not going to make you innocent in God's courtroom. We can't go back thinking that the, the law is going to you know, cleanse me and purify me. It's, it's not going to do that. It's going to reveal that you need to be cleansed and you need to be purified. And here's the thing, y'all. Some of you are here tonight and your whole relationship with Christianity has been that you've been going to the law to look to feel like you are justified in the eyes of God. You've been going to the law. You've been going to obedience. You've been going to a track record. You've been going to, to, have I done enough? Am I doing enough? Am I reading the Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Am I doing it this way? Am I doing it that way? Have I read the latest book? Do I have accountability in my life? Am I doing, have I done, gone through partners? Do I, have I, am I showing up on Thursday at evangelism? And all these things are good, but you are, you've placed your entire status and confidence in your standing with God on those things. And that's looking to the law to be justified. And my guess is you find yourself after looking to all those things and striving to be justified and doing all those things, you find yourself discouraged. You find yourself ashamed. You find yourself reading a verse like Romans 8, 1, where Paul says there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And you're like, man, I wish I knew what that was like because I don't know what that's like. The reason is because you keep going back to the mirror to look for the mirror to fix the stain on your shirt and you need the shirt to be changed. You keep going back to the law to look for righteousness. You keep going back to obedience to look for righteousness. And all that's going to do is show you that you're not righteous enough. And the reality is you need a transformation. You need Christ to come in and transform you completely because the, the law is there to simply show you that you need that. That's why Paul says this in verse 19. He says, for through the law, I died to the law. Through the law, meaning in other words, as the law opened my eyes and said, wow, Paul, you're in a bad way, dude. You, you can't be righteous enough. You need an, a, a righteousness outside of yourself. Paul says, through that knowledge, then I died to the law. In other words, the law and me, we have no more relationship with one another because the law drove me to who? Jesus. The law drove me to Christ. So I don't need the law anymore, you see? Once the shirt is changed, I don't need to keep going back to the mirror looking for the stain because the stain is not there anymore because the shirt is new. Once you have been made new in Christ, we don't need to keep going back to the law to confirm that we're sinners because we... We understood that and we understand that, but now we have an answer to the sin because now we have Christ. And we have put on Christ's righteousness. In Matthew 5, 20, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking, and this is early, guys, early in his ministry. And so people are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. He's this new rabbi to them that's on the scene, and he's doing some pretty amazing stuff. If you go back to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 2-ish, I think, one, end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, end of chapter one, I think he's, he's healing all kinds of people. He's hanging out at, at Peter's mother-in-law's house and he's, he's there. And it says in the text that people were lined up outside with people who were sick and were lame and had demons. And Jesus was up all night, just killing it, man. He was casting out demons. He was healing the lame. He was healing the sick. He was cleansing the lepers and, and he's just doing crazy stuff. And people are walking away, blown away by him and the miracles he's doing. But it, it says also in the text that they were blown away by his teaching because it says that they taught he taught them not like their scribes, not like the other teachers and religious leaders, but it says that he taught them as one who had a, a different level of authority. So Jesus is getting famous. And then he sits down and he gives the, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with all the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, blessed are those who. 
And then he gets into the, the verses that make us all cringe when he's like, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Great, good, I haven't committed adultery. That's awesome, check the box, I'm good to go. Oh, wait a minute, but I say to you, if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery with them. And that's where we kind of, ooh, cringe a little bit. And then it says, Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. And you're like, good, I'm good. I haven't committed murder. So I'm righteous. I'm keeping the law. I'm two for two. But then Jesus says, but wait a minute. But I say to you, if you hated somebody, if you harbored angerness and, and bitterness, angerness, that's not a word. If you've harbored, harbored anger and bitterness towards somebody in your heart, Jesus says, you're guilty of murder because the root is the same. The problem is an internal problem with sin. So what Jesus is doing is he's indicting all of us. Well, in Matthew 5, 20, here's what he says. And this is an amazing statement that, that falls kind of on deaf ears for you and I because we think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. At this point in time in Jesus' ministry, they weren't the bad guys. They were the, the cream of the crop. They were the most righteous men that walked the face of the earth at this point in time. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond, surpasses unless you are more righteous he says than the pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven man that would have been the e-brake just popping in people's lives right there tires screeching everything grinding to a halt going wait what because again they're looking at the pharisees going these are the most righteous of all the righteous and jesus you're telling me i have to be more righteous to them than they are and then you're telling me man don't commit lust in my heart because if i lust after somebody it's it's adultery if i hate somebody or i'm angry with somebody it's like I'm, I'm committing murder jesus this is impossible and you know what jesus would have said you're right because the righteousness that you need is not a righteousness that comes from obedience to the law you need an alien righteousness you need a righteousness that's outside of yourself you need a righteousness that's going to come from christ through faith in Christ. And see, guys, that's what the law is meant to do. It's meant to drive us to Jesus. Because Paul writes this in Romans 8, 3, and 4. Paul says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. In other words, the law is weakened by the flesh because that's our flesh. We can't fulfill God's righteous standard by the law. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh can't do. How did he do it? He did it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Did you catch that? Paul said, hey, God, God dealt with the law. The law is meant to show you you can't fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So God said, hey, look, I'm going to take care of that for you. And he sent Jesus to condemn sin in the flesh to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for us. See, the law is meant to drive us to Jesus. But in order to gain that righteousness, we have to be removed from the equation. And this is why, y'all, we have to die to the law. Because here's the deal. Have you ever tried to mix oil and water? Nobody. Awesome. Good. We'll go home and try it. It, it, it doesn't work. In fact, you can pour a half cup of oil in a bottle and a half cup of water in a bottle and screw the lid on and just shake it up and down as much as you want. And then what's going to happen? The oil and water are going to what? separate because they can't mix well guys it's the same thing with christ's righteousness and self-righteousness and if we try to live by the law what we're doing is we're we're fueling we're filling up our life with self-righteousness and self-righteousness and christ's righteousness don't mix and there's only one that's going to get you into heaven 
And it's not self-righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. So we have to get out of the way. Salvation, when, when Jesus comes in to our lives, it's a, it's a takeover, not a makeover. It's a total transformation. And so as you think about that, as you think about the law, as you think about your relationship to the law, the thing that we need to understand tonight and embrace tonight and accept tonight, in fact, that's point number one, is we need to accept our new relationship to the law. Accept your new relationship to the law. Again, in these first few verses, Paul's saying, look, we are done trying to be justified by the law because the law is there to show me I'm a sinner. And when I'm trying to be justified by the law, I'm rebuilding what I tore down. And I can't do that because all that's going to do for me is show me that I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. And again, some of you are sitting here tonight going, that's, that's been me. And I'm telling you, you need to accept your new relationship to the law. That the law, if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus' righteousness, the one that condemned sin in the flesh and provided the, the, met the righteous requirement of the law for you, if you will trust him, then you can be dead to the law. Then you can let go of that, that quest to be acceptable and lovely and right in the eyes of God by obeying enough. And you can trust that, that Jesus did that for you. And there's a new relationship. You with Paul can say, I died to the law. Some of the things, again, that we look to as obeying God and we put our, our confidence and our faith in are these things, our, our, our purity. Man, I need to be pure enough and then God will be pleased with me. Then God will be happy with me. Then God will love me. Then I'll know God's forgiveness if I can just be pure enough. Uh, man, if I just serve enough, then God's gonna be happy with me. Then God's gonna love me. Then I'll be acceptable to the Lord. Oh man, if I, 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 just, I need to be more loving. I'm not a loving enough person. If I love people more, then if I'm, a, I'm more loving, then God will love me more and God's gonna be happy with me more and God's gonna be, I'll be acceptable to God if, I, if I'm a more loving person. If I'm more generous, man, if I give more, God's gonna love me more. He'll accept me then if, if I just give more. If I pray more, God will love me. I'll be more acceptable to God if I, if I pray more. I need to be more consistent in that. If I read my Bible more, God's gonna be more pleased with me. He's gonna love me. He's gonna accept me if I, if I read my Bible more. I'll be, uh, I won't feel guilty about my sin if I just read my Bible more. If I share the gospel with somebody, you know what, then, then God's gonna love me. See guys, when, when we do that, when we have that mindset, are those things good? Let's say yes to that, right? All of those things are good in the right context. But if we're looking to those things to be our source of right standing with God, then they're not good anymore. Then we're rebuilding what we've torn down. Then this is Christian Stockholm Syndrome right here. Going back to the, the law, our version of the law, and saying, God, are you, are you pleased with me? Because look at everything that I'm doing. And at the end of the day, it's just not going to be enough. We're looking to be justified by something that can't do it. And that's what Peter was doing. That's what the Judaizers were want, wanting them to do. And they were arguing that, that Paul was saying by, by arguing this, by the, making the point that I'm making right here, that we all need to die to the law. They were looking at Paul going, well, Paul, guess what, dude? You're just saying that, that we can live whatever life we want to. They were accusing him of this slippery slope argument. Okay, Paul, so you're saying that trying to obey the law to earn God's favor is bad. So in other words, Paul, what you're saying is trying to obey the law is bad. So in other words, Paul, what you're saying is just obedience is bad. See, this is the, the counter-argument of these Judaizers. Well, Paul, you're just saying that, that I, it doesn't matter how I live my life then. 
And Paul's not arguing that at all. In fact, he's arguing that we have a new relationship now to the Lord. Look at verse 20. In verse 19, Paul said, look, I've died to the law. In verse 20, he explains that. He says, because I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We don't die to the law to be free to live however we want to live. We die to the law in order to be free to live to who, according to this text? To live to God. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, is Christ a servant of sin? Does Christ promote sin? Of course he doesn't promote sin. And we are servants of Christ. We are living for Christ. We are living to God. And so we've died to the law. Paul says we've been crucified with Christ. Did Paul know what crucifixion was? Yes or no? Let's go north-south on that one. I haven't done that in a while. There you go. North-south. Yeah. Not east-west, north-south. Yes. Yeah. In fact, we don't know this for sure, but it's possible that, that Paul was there when Jesus was crucified. He was there when Stephen was stoned. We know that. The Bible tells us he was. Paul knew what crucifixion was. Do you think Paul took that word lightly? I mean, guys, I'll be honest. It, it, it makes my skin crawl when I hear people in our society talk about somebody who got criticized and say, oh man, they crucified him. No, they didn't. He wasn't stripped naked, flayed open in the, the, the back and, and hung on a splintered wooden cross and made to suffocate for six, seven, eight, nine hours for the average person as people mocked him and spit on him. Somebody just said they don't like him. So let's back off the crucifixion language, right? But Paul uses it here. We have been crucified with Christ. A strong language coming from Paul. We need to hear it as strong language coming from Paul. Paul knew what that meant. Paul knew that that was his savior that had died. And he's saying, look, you and I have died with Christ. What does that mean? How do I know that? How do I know if I've died with Christ? Romans chapter six, Romans six, three through seven. Paul writes there, same author, Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're not talking about physical baptism here, y'all. We're talking about the, the baptism of the spirit that takes place when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our savior. We have been baptized. We have been united. We have been placed into, we have been identified with Jesus through faith so that Jesus's death is now my death. We were baptized into his death. Verse four, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. Four, verse five, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified. There's that word again that Paul uses, Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. And Paul says here, I have been crucified with Christ. And so he's saying, look, the old man is gone. The old shirt is off. The new is here. The old man has been crucified with Christ. That body of sin, my identity as the one that was enslaved to sin is dead is what Paul is saying. 
We died with Christ. My sin owed a death, and Jesus died that death, and we have been able to participate in that death. Christ's death is our death. Let me illustrate it this way. Say you owed a debt, and I've gone into this analogy before, but I'm going to twist it a little bit tonight. Say you owed a massive debt. Let's say $2 million. I'm guessing nobody on, on the, the, the patio right now could pay a $2 million debt just by whipping out your, your checkbook, credit card. You guys probably don't even have a checkbook, do you? It's like, what is that for? I don't, I don't know. I don't know where mine is either, so there you go. Let's say you owe $2 million, and somebody came to you and said, hey, I've got good news for you. Somebody paid that debt. Sweet. How do I know that? What do I need to do? How do I cash in on that? Well, you don't need to do anything. Just, just trust that that's the reality. Trust that this person paid your debt. They paid the $2 million. Nobody's going to come after you anymore. Your account has been identified with their account, and they have transferred the money into your account so that you no longer owe $2 million. In fact, you don't owe anything anymore. Everything's paid for you. You just have to, to trust and now live in that reality that you are debt-free now. See, that's how we so often talk about the gospel. And that's sort of what it, we're talking about here. But I want to twist it this way we had that debt that we owed, right? Which was death for the wages of sin is death. And that death has been paid. That death has been died. Jesus paid that debt for us. And so we hear that good news in the gospel. Somebody shares the gospel with us for the first time. Hey, guess what? Jesus died for your sins. Jesus paid the penalty that you couldn't pay. Jesus has forgiven you now. If you will put your trust in Jesus and you're like, this is awesome. How do I gain this? What do I need to do? You don't need to do anything. You need to trust that Jesus has done it and live in the reality that he's done it. You need to trust and now you need to live debt-free because you are debt-free. Don't go out and rack up a, a bunch of debt again. Don't go live like you're still enslaved to, to debt. Now live new, live a new life. Live it like you are debt-free because you are debt-free and you just need to trust that that's true and live in light of it because I'm here to tell you that it's true. Okay, so that's what we just talked about. But there's one more thing that we would add. Oh, by the way, and in dying your death and paying that insurmountable debt that you owed, you now belong to Jesus. You are now owned by the one who paid your debt. See, we don't like that. That's the part of Christianity that causes most people to say, I'm out. But it's true. Paul makes the argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says to you and I, he says, you have been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. So if you are in Christ, if, if Jesus is your Savior, then he owns you. He owns me. Paul says it this way in our text, Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life is dead. Now it's about Christ living in me. Christ, it, it, my life is Jesus' life. He, it's, it's, it's what, what does he want? What does he want me to do? Man, I, he's the one who's animating me. He's the one that's living in me now. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, now that you are saved and in Christ, here's the thing. You are under new management. 
It's no longer you governing, uh, controlling your life. You are no longer the master of your fate and the captain of your souls. You are now, uh, you are owned by Jesus. We use the language in the church of that Jesus is your savior and your what? Lord. That's what we mean. That word Lord in the Greek, it means master. He's your master. You are his servant, his subject. He rules, he reigns over us. And he has that right because he's paid the debt that we owed. And in paying the debt that, he, that, that we owed for us, he's now said, and now you are mine. And so this charge that people were loving at Paul saying, well, Paul, you're just arguing that all I have to do is believe in Jesus, then I can live however I want, is completely backwards. Paul's saying, no, I'm gone. Jesus now lives in me. My life is about Jesus. Everything that, that, that I was about, man, it's gone, especially if it doesn't line up with what Jesus wants. My life is now bent on living the life that Jesus wants me to live. Our second point tonight is this. Accept the new management in your life. Accept the new management in your life. The problem for us all is that we really like the old management. We really liked when we governed our lives. And that's what causes that Stockholm syndrome in us as believers. We want to go back to being a slave to sin. We want to go back to being imprisoned by the law. Instead of realizing our freedom in Christ, which is not a freedom to neutrality, but a freedom to be a a servant of Jesus, a slave even of, of Jesus. And again, that's the language that people don't like. But I want us to think about this for a second, y'all. When you think about going out with the gospel, when you think about talking to somebody about this, sometimes we soft pedal the gospel because we don't want to get to this part and have somebody be like, whoa, I was with you on the whole, like Jesus died for my sins and forgave my sins and stuff. But now you're telling me that he's, he's my Lord, that he's my master, that he owns me. Mm, man, I'm, I'm going to tap out on that one because I, I don't like that. Dude. Don't tell me how I should live my life. But let's, let's think about what we're offering people here for a second, okay? We ready for this? I want you to see the type of master that Jesus is. First, he loves you. Verse 20. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Loved me. What kind of love is that? Oh, well, it's, it's a love that caused him to love you so much that he died for you. He died for you. You see that in verse 20, he gave himself up for us. But we also see that in John 3, 16, the love of the father, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. You say, well, that's the father's love. Yes, but the father and the son are one, are they not? Romans 5, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is a master who loves me and loves me so much that he died for me. What did that death look like? Well, he bore my sins. He took my shame, my guilt, my sin, my condemnation, and he died like he had done those things. He bore God's wrath against my sins. First Peter 2, 4. What else did he do? Well, he was pierced for my transgressions. Laid out on the cross, the nails, the points, he felt the points rest on his wrists before the hammer struck the head and drove it between his wrist bones. And with his feet. Why? Why did he do that? Why? 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 Why, Jesus, would you do that? Because of my sins, my transgressions. He was crushed, beaten 
for my iniquities. Why, 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 Jesus? Why would you do that? Because he loves you. He suffered, Peter says. He just blanket statement, man. He just, he suffered for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 28.20. The price for you and I and our freedom was his life. And he gave it for us. Uh, again, this, we're talking about this is the type of master that Jesus is. This is who he is in our lives. He offers us eternal life. John 4.14. John 5, 39 through 40. Uh, John 4, 14, Jesus is with the woman at the well and he's talking to her about water and he's talking to her about a, a spiritual water and he's using an illustration and an analogy there. But he says, look, I, I will give you water that will spring up to a well of eternal life within you. He offers us eternal life. How about just in, in general, let's, let's zoom out even further. Colossians 1:17 says that in Christ, all things hold together. So why does the world keep spinning it has nothing to do with science and, and gravitational force if Jesus doesn't hold those things together. Your next breath is because of Colossians 1.17, because Jesus loves you, because that's the type of master he is. He's gone to prepare a place for you so that you can come and be with him, John 14, 2 through 3. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he's telling his disciples, hey, I'm going someplace, and his disciples are like, where are you going? We want to be with you. And he's like, hey, you can't come with me right now, but good news, I'm going to go to the to be with my father and I'm going to prepare a place for you and you're going to come to be with me someday there. It's true of you as well. He lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. That means that he is continually before the father interceding for us, which means he's mediating for us. He's there pleading his righteousness on our behalf before the father. And it says he lives to always make intercession for us. He's never going to stop. He's never going to give up pleading his righteousness to your account. And he's an advocate between us and the Father. 1 John 2, 1. This is the type of master that we're talking about when we say that Jesus owned you. It's not some cruel killjoy. It's not somebody who hates you. It's not somebody who's angry with you. It's not somebody with a short fuse. It's not somebody that's going to abuse you. It's not somebody that's going to do things to you that are going to cause you to go, man, this is bad for me. It's not somebody that that hasn't already proven to the utmost extent how much he loves you. This is the type of master that Jesus is. This is why Paul's like, dude, bring it. I, I, I'm gone. Jesus lives in me. I have died. I'm gone. I don't want that guy back. Christ now lives in me. What about, well, what does this master want me to do? Well, he wants me to be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful gentle, self-controlled, okay? Are we gonna throw a moral flag on any of those things and go, I can't believe Jesus wants me to do those things? I don't think so, right? And he wants me to love other people? Hmm, man, rough. He wants me to serve other people. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And this is love, that you love one another as I have loved you, a new commandment I give you, brother, that you love one another as I've loved you. He wants us to serve one another. He wants us to rejoice with each other. Hey, you know what? Man, I can't believe how cruel of a master Jesus is. He wants me to be happy with people who are happy. He also wants me to, to comfort people when they're not, when they're sorrowful. 
Jesus wants me to, to be there for them and to be a shoulder for them to cry on and to comfort them. Jesus wants to hear from me. He wants me to pray to him. He wants me to communicate to him. He wants me to, to praise him, to worship him, and, and, and to, to tell him what's going on in my life, to be dependent on him because he's there and he wants to be, be in relationship with me, which is all he, also why he wants me to read his word because he's inspired this, this book. He's, he's written this book for us where he tells us all about him and how much he loves us. And he wants me to spend time in this book because it's the way that he's going to communicate to me the most tangibly. And yes, he wants me to avoid things that are bad for me and for other people. And I get it. It's this last one that's the rub. Because what we're doing by submitting to Jesus is we're allowing him to define what's bad for me and what's bad for others rather than us to define what's bad for me and what's bad for others. And this is where we have to be willing to die to ourselves and submit to Jesus. But again, when I look at this list, y'all, I'm not going to look at this list and think to myself, I can't believe that he wants me to do this. What kind of cruel master is Jesus? Oh, I forgot one more. Store up reward and treasures for yourself in heaven. So many people recoil at the thought of Jesus as the master in their lives. So many people recoil at the thought that, man, I've been crucified with Jesus and now I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me, man, who would want that? And I look at these things and I look at the type of savior and the type of master Jesus is and the things that he wants me to do. And I'm like, dude, I want that. I want Jesus. I want him more. And the part of me that wants to, great against any of these things man i want that to be dying more quickly than it is because that's part of the old man paul keeps going though he says i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me so the life of following jesus is a transformed life it's a life that's going to look different but it's not a life that's going back to the law saying, hey, obedience, I need, I need you because I need to be accepted by God. Because that's not going to work. That's the Stockholm Syndrome. It's a life that's living what Jesus wants us to do because we love Jesus, because Jesus lives in us now. That's why our life looks different. Verse 21, then he says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Y'all, this is the drum that Paul's going to beat throughout the entire book of Galatians. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the gospel. Just coming off that whole, hey, look, your life is going to look different because now Jesus is living in you. And then he comes back and he says, but hey, don't let that let you drift back into a, a, an obedience-fueled righteousness. Because if, if you're looking to be obedient enough and be like, okay, do I see enough evidence that Jesus is living in me? No, I need to do more things. I need to do more, do more, do more, do more, do more then, hey, you're, you're falling back into this trap of trusting your works. And if righteousness is found in your works, then Paul makes it very clear, and it's a startling comment that he makes. He says, if, if that's true, then what? Then Jesus died for nothing. And so what Paul wants us to do, what we need to do, is we need to daily be saturated with the gospel. Final point tonight, accept the call to daily remember the gospel. Accept the call to daily remember the gospel. Y'all, if, if, again, we talked about this last week, if Peter could fall prey to this, drift we can fall prey to this drift 
If Peter could start trusting again in his works, then you and I can start trusting again in our works. And we need to be on guard. And a great way to be on guard is to daily remember the gospel. Paul's argument in this passage that we've looked at tonight is kind of a circle. He says, remember, you've died to the law. And then he says, now live to God. But in living to God, don't forget that you've died to the law and you're righteous only in Jesus. The law, guys, it it has nothing good to offer us any longer. If we're looking at the law saying, okay, can I be obedient, obedient enough? Can I be good enough? Can I pray enough? Can I read my Bible enough? Can I serve enough? Can I fight sin enough? And then God, will you be pleased with me? Will you be happy with me? Will you accept me? Can I have confidence in who I am before you? then guys, the law is always going to leave you feeling deflated and empty and dejected and tired and worn out and defeated and condemned and ashamed. And that's what the law is supposed to do. Because the law wants to break you and then drive you to Jesus. See, we don't need to go back to the law any more than those imprisoned captors that I was talking about from Stockholm should have wanted to go back with their hostage takers those are bad guys they're carrying a submachine gun one of them in in that context threatened to shoot the guy in the leg and the guy who had that threat made against him the the prisoner he said well i thought he was actually pretty nice because he only offered to shoot me in the leg like that's demented that's twisted that guy needs help because it's just as demented and twisted for us to go back to the law and say the law is going to make me righteous before god Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for that reality because the the truth is, as we all here tonight know so well, is we can't be good enough, holy enough, righteous enough, obedient enough, pure enough, faithful enough to be acceptable by you. Lord, we, we, we can't earn your favor, earn your righteousness, earn our standing before you, our standing in Jesus. We can't. And Lord, when we try to, it's, it's a perversion of the law. It, it's a perversion of your intent. It's a perversion of the gospel. And so, Lord, if we've done that, I pray that you would forgive us for that. Because, again, it's, it's a desire for self-righteousness and self-righteousness and Christ-righteousness. Those two things are incompatible with each other. And, Lord, we want to say tonight, we want Christ's righteousness. Lord, do we want to live a transformed life? Yes. Do we want to be obedient? Yes but because we want Jesus living in us, through us. We want to live our lives in obedience to you. We want to live for you and to you because of our relationship with you that we have. Lord, our our prayer lives don't make us more holy in your sight. Our reading the Bible don't make us more justified in your sight. Serving the church doesn't make us more acceptable to you. God, the heavy lifting of our standing before you was done by Christ on the cross. He gets all the glory for that, God. Those things that, that are, are the pursuits that we have in our daily Christian life are, are good. We should want to read the Bible. We should want to pray. We should want to serve. But Lord, we, we want to do those things because we love Jesus and Jesus loves those things and wants us to follow him and wants us to, to, to do those things because we're pursuing a relationship with him. Because as I read the Bible, I'm reading a, a Bible that Jesus has written and given to me. And I'm reading the words of my Savior and I'm reading what he wants me to know. 
God, help us not to, to get things backwards. Help us to understand this is such a, a difficult thing to find the balance, but I pray that you'd be gracious to us and merciful to us to allow us to do that. God, and the most important thing, the most important thing at the end of the day is do I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins? Do I believe that he is the one who paid for my debt? Is my faith there? Lord, that's the most important thing. 